0: Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Ufaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left, my face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face towards the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Thank you, Jez, and good morning, everyone. Hopefully,
1: we'll be seeing each other uh, in, in the flesh before too long. Now, keep your Bibles open there at Daniel chapter 10. My wife and I read this chapter uh, this week and uh, I read it out to her and then I said, "Okay, so what do you think? And after a pause, she replied in a somber tone, good luck. (laughs) And now that's not because my wife doubts that Daniel is a precious part of God's word to humanity and like the rest of the Bible, faithful and true. But let's be honest and say that we really are in the realm of deep weird here. If you've been following uh, this series at all, you will know by now that Daniel is a book of two halves. The first six chapters recount the stories of Daniel and his friends in the Babylonian court. These are young Jewish exiles who were brought from the state of Judah when it was conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And these stories illustrate how to live in Babylon. It's an amazing mix of faithfulness to God knowing where you can adapt to pagan culture and values, but where you have to draw the line out of conviction, uh, all the while praying, 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 seeking the good of the city that they were in, even Babylon, which had destroyed their, their home and their culture, and praying, as Jeremiah had told them, for its peace and prosperity, so that they too would prosper living in Babylon. And then the second half of Daniel, from chapter 7 to 12, is all mostly visions And here Daniel is given four visions progressively of what is happening and will happen in the future over five centuries. He sees the rise and fall of empires, the Babylonian Empire, which he was living in the beginning of the Persian and the Medes Empire called Medo-Persian. And then the Greek Empire coming in and after that, Rome, and particularly the rise of a a ruler uh, in the Greek period called Antiochus Epiphanes IV who would persecute the Jews in the most relentless way, the, the Hitler of the ancient world. These visions were given in a style that we call apocalyptic. You may remember the, the, the Coppola film Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse means an unveiling, a drawing back, so you can see the hidden reality behind the scenes of history, behind it, the visible world. You can see the supernatural realm. And this writing has strange beasts, dramatic figures, symbolic numbers, and weird happenings. And it's known in the Old Testament and after. Andrew Smith is a friend of mine, a minister in America, at a place called Kennett Square in Pennsylvania, a Presbyterian pastor. And he says the second half of Daniel could be called getting home from Babylon. So God reveals to Daniel, who's now an old man, how the people of God will return. They'll return after 70 years of exile to Jerusalem they will rebuild it but that that isn't the end of the story in fact there will be a long period of suffering and struggle until the kingdom of God comes and even then as we now know clearly from the life and teaching of Jesus the kingdom of God will come but it doesn't all happen at once we wait for his second coming now today we reach that fourth that final vision and the end of our series it's been a fascinating time a challenging but I hope uh, helpful to you in your understanding of God and of your place in his world. I hope you've been encouraged to see your life and times differently and to live for God in a world that doesn't know him and to live for him with courage and courtesy. And we're going to finish with chapter 10. We won't be able to go into depth in 11 and 12. uh, But with the help of my friend Andrew Smith, here is what I think is the main point of our text today. And the main point of this sermon. Do not be afraid, but persevere and pray, for God is with you. Don't be afraid, but persevere and pray, for God is with you. And I've got three points today. The first of them is the struggle above. The struggle above. Look at verse 1 again. It sets the time of the vision in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. A revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. So there's a time and a date here. This is the third year of Cyrus. He's the great leader of the Medo-Persian Empire that had overcome the Babylonians. And so Cyrus now is the world leader. He's the leader of the world superpower. And we know... From elsewhere in the Bible that Cyrus, a couple of years before, had done something absolutely extraordinary. Just listen to this from Ezra chapter one. This is another book in the Old Testament. Ezra one says this in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. So here's what he proclaimed. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide for them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Judah. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, valuable gifts in addition to the freewill offerings. Amazing! Amazing! After 70 years, they were going back and they were going back with the blessing of a pagan king. God moved his heart. And that's the king that Daniel is talking about here. 70 years in exile, home at last. Well, sort of home because it was ruined, remember. So they're going back to a building project. Now, why is Daniel still living in Babylon a couple of years after? And why is he so upset? Verses two to three show really an intense period of mourning, fasting and prayer. Uh, It says that in verse two, Daniel mourned for three weeks. And he he goes through this, it's almost kind of ritual uh, exercise of mourning. He eats no choice food, no meat or wine touched his lips. This is like Lent and dry January rolled into one. And he uses no lotions. (laughs) <laughs> or facial creams at all till the three weeks were over so basically Daniel yeah, he's not looking his best he's um he's been uh, eating uh, something to survive but he, uh, he's, he's in kind of in sackcloth and ashes doesn't say that but he's mourning there's this intensity and we know that this is this kind of behavior is always accompanied with fervent prayer now back at the beginning of Daniel it's said that he served in the, the Babylonian court until the first year of Cyrus. And this is the third year. So that means he's now a retired civil servant. And scholars reckon, if you do the math, 70 years have passed since the exile to the return, and he's been serving for most of that time. He must now be in his late 80s, perhaps 86, 87 years of age. And that may be why he's not returned with the other exiles for the building project, but he's certainly praying for them and thinking about them all the time. Now, Grace Church members and friends, you will remember a man called Donald Lee's, Dr. Donald Lee's, who was a key part of our church, a, really a pillar of our church from its very beginning, with twelve people meeting in a living room until he passed away last year. Now, imagine Daniel. Physically being like Donald, that kind of late 80s, well on in years, but still full of concern for the people of God. I think that's a very helpful picture for us. Uh, And he knows that those that have gone back, it's a hard task. Over 40,000 did return, but they had to rebuild a ruined city. And, you know, by the third year, it was clear that they were faced with overwhelming opposition from the neighbours around. And at one point, uh, they were actually commanded to stop. Building. So it's likely, this is the likely reason why Daniel is so distressed. But just look at what he does with his grief. He goes to God in prayer. Verses 2 and 3 are all actions that someone would take who was in extraordinary fasting and intense, fervent prayer. And his prayers are answered in the most spectacular way. God sends him a vision, not just a sort of strange dream, but actually a revelation of a bigger wider reality than we can see with the naked eye verse one makes it clear it says the message was true so what does he see he sees an extraordinary figure verse four on the 24th day of the first month as i was standing on the bank of the great river the tigris this river by the way runs through the city of baghdad that we we know of as baghdad he's standing on the bank of this river. I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Ufaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, precious stone. His face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And his face was like the sound of a multitude. That an extraordinary vision. And there are hints here of royalty With the gold belt and of priestly service in the linen tunic. Linen was the fabric worn by the priests. But there's also something absolutely transcendent. There are reflections of the divine. There's a face like lightning, it's shining. You know, when God appears and comes to earth, whenever he shows up and and touches down on earth, there's always lightning and the earth shakes and people are terrified. And God actually has to conceal his presence with cloud because it's too much for us to bear. We couldn't look upon him. And the voice, this person, what a voice. Daniel never heard anything like it in his life. He never would again on earth. It was like the sound of a multitude, a huge chorus, uh, maybe a, a vast crowd. Certainly this conveys enormous volume, And probably richness and depth as well. Now what is the effect of this vision? You know, people sometimes say, if only I could see God, then I would believe. Or if only I could see an angel or look into heaven, then I'd find it easy to believe or I'd feel comforted. You know you wouldn't. The reality is whenever anybody actually sees God or, or a glimpse of him or an angel or something in the Bible, they're always terrified. They always run for their lives or hide on the ground or, or, or pass out look what happens to daniel verse 7 i daniel was the only one who saw the vision those who were with me didn't see it but such terror overwhelm that they fled and hid themselves so <laughs> the other people just hear something and you know that whatever's going on is so overwhelming that they run for the hills or jump in the canal or something and daniel's left standing there on his own poor old boy can't run what does he do Verse 8, I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking. And as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. It was absolutely awe-inspiring. We probably use words like awe and awesome too cheaply these days. I don't know what the word is. He's overwhelmed by this transcendent vision. Now, who is this majestic figure? Great question. Some people think that it's actually a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before he came to earth and was united with our flesh as a human, uh, they would say this is a pre-incarnate Christ before the incarnation. And they say, number one, the description is so awesome that it sounds divine. Number two, there's a later vision in Revelation chapter 1 at the end of the Bible that is definitely Jesus, we know that, and it sounds a lot like this. There are definitely elements in common. And number three, Daniel has already seen a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus back in Daniel chapter 7, where the one like a son of man comes to the ancient of days and receives from him all dominion and authority and so on. So they say, here's Jesus again. Now, you know, it's impossible to be certain about such things. And people take different views on it. I have concluded after reflecting and studying this, that I don't think this is a vision of Jesus. uh, Because there are no indications here that it is. And there are no links back to Daniel chapter 7, which we we would, I think, expect. This messenger here has been sent by God. It says he's been sent, I've been sent. Nobody sends God in the Old Testament. And I think, crucially, we we read that the figure in verse 13, this person needed help in a battle. Uh, He says, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained. Now, I just think it's impossible for Jesus to be detained somewhere and need help from an angel. So who is the majestic figure? I think the most likely answer is this is actually one of the angels. This is a supernatural being, one who stands in the presence of God. And now he's been sent to help and speak to a broken hearted old man in his late 80s who is pouring himself out in fervent prayer and fasting for God's people. Now just pause here for a moment and think about this. What Daniel's seen and the effect of it on him this is just an angel but at the sight and sound of him men flee in panic and terror and Daniel is so overcome that he goes as white as a sheet and collapses and actually in the rest of the chapter you know when Jez was reading it every time he gets encouraged he's sort of trembling he needs needs to be held up again now if that's an angel what would it be like to see God no wonder the scriptures say no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and has the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. You know Moses, the great leader of God's people, in, in, in the, the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible, the one who, who stood up to Pharaoh, who God, God revealed himself to, gave him his name, Yahweh, his special personal name. Moses at one point asked, I, I want to see you. And God said, you can't. You can't see me. I'll just show you the the back portions of my glory. He had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock. And even that was overwhelming. And when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining and radiant. So he had to cover it with a veil. Nobody sees God. This is just an angel. And the angel gives him a glimpse behind the scenes. Behind the curtain of reality to that supernatural realm. Now, just read verses 12 to 14 with me again and prepare to have your mind blown. Okay? Fasten your seatbelt. Verse 12 Do not be afraid, Daniel. Lovely words. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. It's prayers. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained with the prince of Persia, king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. You see, what this is saying is that Daniel's prayers, remember he's been fasting three weeks. His prayers were heard on the first day in heaven and God acted upon them. Your words were heard and an angel is sent, but it took 21 days for the angel to get there. Why? Is this because it's a three week journey from heaven to earth? (laughs) Excuse me. No, I don't think that's the answer. He explains that it's because there's a battle raging in the heavenly realms. There's a figure referred to as the prince of the Persian empire, persian uh, kingdom who resists 21 days and so this angel has to call for help from another angel michael who we know elsewhere in the bible and they fight this prince of persia for 21 days and overcome him and later on verse 20 the prince of greece will come And they will be contending with him. What this is talking about is angelic struggle in the heavenly realms. I told you it was deep weird. This is talking about behind the scenes there are angelic spiritual forces that are contending to help God's people. So on the the world map of that time it's all about Persia and Greece and then Rome. Remember we looked at that video a few weeks ago. But in God's heart and God's mind, the little tiny kingdom of Israel and the Judah, the the exiles that have gone back, they're what's important to him. And he sends his angels to contend. Now, what this is suggesting also is that behind governments, behind nations, behind empires, there are spiritual forces that are influencing them. Now, uh, this is saying there's a spiritual realm and angels are involved behind world events. And they are fighting against fallen angels, which we call demons. Let me just quickly talk a bit about angels. They occur over 200 times in the Bible, there's more than 200 references. They occur in 17 books in the Old Testament, 17 books in the New Testament, so we can't ignore them. They're, they're around. They are, they are uh, defined as created beings, they were made by God. God is the only uncreated one. They are accountable to God, they're intelligent. And they can act, but they're not all-knowing like God. Peter says in the New Testament that they long to look into things about the gospel, but it was kept from them. They don't have full knowledge. They're not at all like the angels of television and films and popular folklore and stories. They're neither comforting chubby babies with wings playing a harp on a cloud, nor are they sort of the angels that appear in things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They are... Spiritual beings, not embodied, of great power. And sometime before human history, there was a rebellion in heaven and a number of them turned against God. And these fallen angels led by Satan, the accuser, are now in constant opposition to God and God's purposes in history. And therefore, they particularly hate God's people and they do everything to oppose them. And they can't be saved, these angels. But there is these demons, there is a mighty, mighty host of angels who serve God like a, a great army. When God is called the Lord of hosts, it's talking about the hosts of angels. And their role is to serve God and serve God's people. There are chief angels, archangels, there are throne room angels, the cherubim and seraphim. If you remember Isaiah 6, they're flying around the throne and there are angels sent as messengers. That's a brief history of angels. Abraham Kuyper, who was a theologian who became the Prime Minister of the Netherlands in the early 20th century, so the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Kuyper wrote this, If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping over everything in its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on Earth would seem, by comparison, a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggle drones in the backlash. That's the struggle above. It's a spiritual struggle. Most of the time we're ignorant of it. Thankfully, because we would be terrified by it. And the most extraordinary part of all this, by the way, I think, is not so much that all that is going on because if you believe in God, you have to accept there is the possible existence of other supernatural beings. And most cultures have some category for angels and demons. The most extraordinary part of this, which I think we are meant to sit up and notice, is the role of Daniel's prayer. Verse 12. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and humble yourself before God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. You see, the vast metaphysical reality that is there in the heavens is being influenced by a little old man in Babylon, a retired civil servant who humbles himself and prays. And Daniel didn't really have a clue how much was at stake in his praying. But you know, the same thing is true for us because God, the almighty God, upon whom we cannot look, uses our prayers in his kingdom purposes. James says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The Apostle Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, Christian, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms the exact same thing that Daniel is experiencing Paul says to you and me that by your weak and feeble and inarticulate prayer you put your hand upon the lever that moves the universe and it's not a lever it's the hand of God because the prayers of the saints are precious to him and they move him to action I wonder if you ever thought of prayer like that what would understanding this do to your prayer life and mine I suggest it would electrify it and we know how to pray because Jez taught us that last week from Daniel 9 will we do it that's the struggle above (laughs) and our role in it Now, my next two points are much briefer. Don't worry, you'll get your Sunday lunch. The second point is the saints below. That's the struggle above. Now we're thinking about the saints below, the people of God below. Sixteen years ago, uh, we had two children, a boy called Will and a younger child, Rosie, our daughter. And Rosie became very ill with something called febrile convulsions. I hadn't heard of it but many parents have and febrile convulsions are actually really, really frightening. Uh, If you haven't seen one, with a febrile convulsion a child reaches a really high temperature and then they have a fit, they kind of overload and in the fit they go very pale and they get blue lips and then they sort of pass out and flop uh, and go really, really cold and clammy. And febrile convulsions to a young parent are absolutely terrifying it turns out they're fairly common and most children I believe grow out of them by about the age of five but we didn't know any of this so we have our beautiful little 18 month old daughter and she started having these episodes and my, I was at work in London my wife was terrified and called my dad and they uh, blue lighted them to hospital in Kingston now the thing with these convulsions is they look like meningitis so there was a risk of meningitis and the hospital staff took it very seriously. They put our little daughter in, in a uh, a cubicle, in a room with a curtain across. And they scrunched her up on this little bed and they were, she was surrounded by doctors and nurses. And they said to us, "You know, this is very upsetting for parents to see this, so we want you to stay outside, please. And they got a big needle and they pushed it into her back to take some spinal fluid out and test for meningitis now let me tell you that memory of that little scrap of humanity 18 months old uh, who couldn't speak yet who was looking at us with her big hazel eyes as we walked out of the room and as the curtain was pulled across and we were hidden from view that memory will never leave us we were behind the curtain and we were the situation was absolutely beyond her understanding We, the parents who loved her, had gone away and she was now suffering intense pain at the hands of strangers. Where did we go? We were invisible. And the only people around were strangers, big people who were hurting her. To the mind of an 18-month-old child, it was agony and abandonment. Yet, the parents were just the other side of the curtain the whole time nothing could move us from that spot every fiber in us our whole heart was reaching out to her in love we would have done anything to help her we would have gone under the needle ourselves and those doctors they were sent by us to help her to contend for her to find out what was wrong to fix it everyone in that bigger reality the staff Inside the room, the parents behind the curtain, everyone in that bigger reality is bent on helping and loving and healing that child. But at that moment in time, for that period, it makes no sense at all to the infant, does it? It's beyond her comprehension. Now, listen, we are like that in our relationship with God and the bigger reality behind the scenes in our world. We feel we're alone and agonized and abandoned. Where is he now? What's happening to me? The curtain is across. I can't see him. Maybe God's not there. But all the while he's just there and his whole heart is bent on helping and loving us. Now that's our position. The saints below. I want you to keep that image of the baby in your mind. And that scene because I think it explains a lot of our spiritual experience. This chapter is obsessed with Daniel's weakness. Verse 8. Just look at how many times he says he was weak. Uh, he's left alone. I had no strength left. The face was deathly pale. I was helpless. Verse nine. He fell into a deep sleep face to the ground. Verse 11. Uh, he is told to get up and I stood up trembling. Verse 15. He says, uh, while he was saying this to me, I bowed my face to the ground. I was speechless. Verse 16. They uh, touched my lips. I opened my mouth. I began to speak. Lord, I'm overcome with anguish because of the vision. I feel very weak. Verse 18, again, he he touched me and gave me strength. Don't be afraid, you are highly esteemed. Peace, be strong now, be strong. Can you sense what's going on with this, this old man? But notice the tender, gracious regard of God for him. He sends an angel, mighty one, who does his bidding. And this angel's ministry is so kind, so tender, so thoughtful and gracious, just the thing the weak person needs. He speaks to Daniel, you are highly esteemed. You know, these are very precious words. Very few people get get called highly esteemed in the scriptures. Abraham was called God's friend, but I believe not in his lifetime. Mary, the mother of Jesus, you who are highly favoured. Daniel, he says more than once, you are highly esteemed. God specially regards you and loves you. And there's a touch. Have you ever been so low and discouraged or just feeling so bereft and lonely that a a, a simple, a gentle human touch on the arm or someone taking your hand or or, or, or just an arm around the shoulders fills you with hope? That warmth, the angel touches his hand several times, gives him strength. He encourages him and calls him by name again and again. Don't be afraid, Daniel. Do not be afraid is the most frequent command in the Bible. Do not be afraid. And you remember it was frequently on the lips of our Lord Jesus, particularly when his disciples were frightened. Do not fear. I have overcome the world. And all of this, you know, is written for our benefit, because we are the saints below. This is the loving regard of God for you. This angel is coming to stand in support. What kindness he shows. And if this is an angel... How much more does God regard the weakness and the fragility of His precious people, the people that Jesus bought with His own blood? You know, we cannot see behind the curtain. It's been pulled across for a while. We're like an 18 month old child full of fear. But He is there, do not doubt. And everything is happening for our good and for our ultimate health and happiness. So what should we do, saints below? We've got to pray. I would suggest we need to learn to pray like never before. Because with what we learned about prayer last week and what we're learning about prayer this week, that prayer can move the hands that move the universe, that prayer can influence the conflict in the spiritual realms, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against those principalities, powers, rulers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces. Will you pray? This very weak thing, strangely tiring, isn't it? We meet for prayer as an eldership team, our leadership team, for an hour before work one morning in the week. I have to say it's the most tiring hour of my week. We pray through the entire list of the church by name, each individual. We pray for those who are in special suffering and difficulty. We pray through a psalm. By the end of it, I'm both exhausted and exhilarated. I've got a couple of elders in this room. I think they're both sort of nodding. But we've got to do it. Pray for Sundays. Great Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon said to his congregation, if you do not pray for me, I won't come on Sunday. Because without your prayers, my preaching is worthless and useless. Will you pray for us? You know, preaching is pretty difficult. It needs the attendance of the Spirit of God in power for it to do anything. It's so weak. Will you pray for the suffering church around the world and the country that it is in? Will you pray for Turkey, the whole nation, and the angels behind the scenes in Turkey, and Kerem, coach, and his wife and family and the church in Antalya and the the other pastors around that country who are working hard for God's glory, David and Monica Taylor and others. Will you pray? Will you devote yourself to pray for the people of God in a certain country, India, We've talked about this before. Pray for our church. Pray for each other. We're struggling. We're discouraged. Lockdown is wearing us down. It's attritional. I know this. We're hoping to come together again soon. It's been a long, hard night. The light is coming, but we must pray. We pray for Manchester, this great city. Growing city, but quite a dark city. Pray for new church plants, new communities of light. Pressing back the darkness. Pray for those that we know who are planting churches, leading churches. Greg, Christina and the guys at Redeemer. Matt and Ralph, City Church. All the others. Paul Matoli, Holy Trinity Platt. We need to pray. Pray, pray for your loved ones. Do you really think there is someone in your life who is too hard for God? Think about how powerful God is. This verse, Daniel 10, is the clearest place in the Bible about how powerful and effective human prayer is. That's what we need to do, the saints below. Okay, we're nearly at the end. We thought about the struggle above. We thought about the saints below. Finally, I want to close this whole series with the saviour beside. The saviour beside. Daniel's full of some quite weird and wonderful stuff. And the visions particularly have been challenging, haven't they? Visions of beasts that represent kingdoms. A vision of a statue. and a head of gold. The chest and shoulders of silver and then the the the, uh, the bronze and then the, the legs that were kind of iron and then the, the feet were iron and clay but it was a stone cut out not by human hands that rolled in and smashes it and brings it down and that stone grows till in the end it fills the earth what is it all about here's the answer jesus wins jesus wins. That's the key to understanding all these visions. It's the key to understanding the whole book. When Daniel and his friends well sorry Daniel's friends not him were stood firm for God against an idolatrous king and were thrown into a fiery furnace what happened? A fourth figure appeared and sustained them and kept them and they were released unharmed. Jesus wins. When Daniel himself refused to stop praying in public and stood against the edict of the king. And even the king was full of regret because he'd been trapped by a political plan. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, but somebody, God, closed the mouth of the lions and the the old man was released unharmed in the morning. Jesus wins. That vision of the statue, this mighty statue that seems to fill the earth, but there's a rock, not cut out with human hands, that smashes its feet and eventually fills and never ends, a kingdom without end. Jesus wins. The vision of the beast. Remember that crazy vision with the the lion with the wings of an eagle, and then the bear with the th- th- food in its mouth, and the leopard, and all the and that strange and terrifying beast. Finally, what happens? Jesus wins. Because in Daniel seven, one comes like a son of man and comes before the Ancient of Days, God, and God gives him all power, all authority, all dominion, and he rules a world of peace without end. Jesus wins. And we know how he did it. He did it by his cross and resurrection. And you remember Jesus won his victory by praying. Prayed in great anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane for us, for himself, for that victory he was going to win. He suffered for us on the cross. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He rose again on the third day, defeating death and Satan. He fights for us. He triumphs over the powers there at the cross. And he is praying for us now. So we've thought about the struggle above, that bigger vision of reality. We've thought about the saints below and our role in prayer. But I don't want us to just think this all finishes with us needing to pray more. Because it's not all about us. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one, uh, the, the, the real subject of the whole of the Bible. And so I want to finish... With that vision that uh, comes in Revelation of Jesus, which draws on Daniel, but actually goes much further. And to think about this one, who is currently praying for you. Revelation 1. John says, I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. They're churches. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe Reaching down to his feet and with the golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. This is that Ancient of Days image from Daniel 7. Now on Jesus, the image of God. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This is Jesus and he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus wins. And so as we wait for his return, or for our own death, whichever comes first, we wait in this scene below, knowing that he is by our side. You remember, at the end of Matthew, it was just as he was about to return to heaven, Jesus gave a great commission to his followers, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But he said, at the end of it, critically, And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is what we now know. And this is how we live as Christians. Knowing that Jesus is not only enthroned in heaven at the right hand of God, but is with us now in our struggle. Let's go to him and take his hand, shall we? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we need your encouragement, your strength, and we need a bigger vision. Thank you that we get that in Daniel and help us to live and pray in light of it for your son's sake and for our good. Amen.